Let's pray. You have been faithful to us all our life long. You have brought us to this moment. We are here by your design, and no one is here or watching by accident. And so I pray, Father, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit and by your word would awaken dead sinners, awaken slumbering saints, strengthen and unify your church, and grant that more needs would be met in this hour than I could dream. Take the five loaves and two fish of this message, I pray, and and make it feed 5,000. That is, make it go beyond anything humanly possible in the accomplishing of your saving, strengthening, empowering purposes. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you can see the title of this message is Bethlehem's Antioch moment. It's a break from our journey through the Gospel of John. And the reason for the break is that every now and then a church comes to an Antioch moment that needs to be addressed. And I take the, the term, as you can see, from the text in Acts 13, 1 to 3. The leaders are gathered together. And they are worshiping and they are fasting and praying, evidently in the hope that the Holy Spirit would speak and give them guidance for the next chapter in the church's life. So the church in Antioch had come to a point in its short history where they needed to know what next, Lord, and they worshiped and they fasted. And God spoke. And I doubt that they realized what would happen as they gathered for prayer, that they realized the momentous event that was about to occur. It it was an event that would change the whole world forever. What the Holy Spirit said here changed the world forever. Now, we'll come back to the text in a few moments, but let me, let me explain to you what I mean by Bethlehem's Antioch moment so you'll know, why is he doing this? Where's this sermon coming from? Why interrupt John in order to do this? Bethlehem will be 140 years old this June. She started as an ethnic church plant out of First Baptist, across town over there. That's our mother. You drive by, Hennepin. This happened in 1871. Ulysses Grant was the president. The Civil War was five years over. And Minnesota was a 13-year-old state. There were 20 
four, 23 charter members who came out. And on the night of June 24, they took hands in a circle. You can read about this in our centenary, centenary, whatever that word is, um, book that's been written about the history of this church. And they prayed. And I wonder if they prayed for the, for the Bethlehem of 140 years later. I wonder. I pray for this church 140 years from now. I just did downstairs because I'm so keenly aware of how much I want it to be here if Jesus isn't here in the flesh. Imagine how many Antioch moments this church has faced for 140 years. Turning points. Decisive moments where everything could go haywire or everything could press on. For example, the Antioch moment in 1875 when the church burned down. That was two blocks from here where the Douglas building is. Will they survive this little baby four-year-old church? And they did. The Antioch moment of the 1890s when the church had to ask the question, will we be just a church for the neighborhoods around this new city called Minneapolis, or will we be a church for the nations? And the die was cast with the sending of Minnie and Ola Hansen to the Burmese in 1890, and for a century we've never gone back from that commitment. An awesome moment in the life of this church. 600,000 Kachin almost worship Ola Hansen today. Number three, the 1930s, the Antioch moment of trying to decide, do we make the painful shift from Swedish to English? No change like that is easy for a church that's been speaking Swedish for 70 years. And they made that change, aren't you glad? I am. I wouldn't be able to preach. Number four, the Antioch moment of the 1960s. Imagine this neighborhood with no freeways. It was idyllic. It was a beautiful, old, big trees neighborhood. And in 1967, two freeways were planted 100 feet from this building. And they had to ask, can we survive this? Can we survive that horrible spaghetti junction out there? And they decided, we're staying We're not going away from the downtown neighborhood in spite of that monstrosity of an intersection where if you can see the church, you can't get to it. (laughs) Number five, the Antioch moment of the 1980s. Okay, now I'm here. Three Sunday morning services, one Sunday evening service. For five years, wearing everybody out. Will we build a sanctuary? Bigger or won't we? And we did. You're in it. It's 20 years old. Number six, 
the Antioch moment of the 1990s, or 1990 in particular, shall we be an elder-governed church, or shall we continue the century-long practice of having only paid pastors and deacons? Elders are Presbyterian. We don't have those. Or will we go with the Bible and put in place a council of elders who will govern the church? And amazingly, without splitting us to smithereens, we put in place a new constitution and are governed today by 37 godly biblical elders. Number seven, the Antioch moment of 2000. Will we remain a doctrinally broad and loose evangelical church, or will the congregation vote to require of its elders that they embrace the elder affirmation of faith, 12 pages long, fully reformed, baptistic, biblical in its doctrinal rigor, and the church said, we will. Amazing. And again, we didn't blow up. And number eight, the Antioch moment of 2004, will we build a huge, different downtown sanctuary, or will we become a church on multiple campuses and commit ourselves to planting churches and caring for the poorest of the poor through the global diaconate. And the church said, let's do it that way. Let's grow without growing, we called it, meaning this room didn't change size. We just now have a north campus and a south campus, three campuses, Moundsview, eight miles that way, North and, and Bloomington, I mean Burnsville, 16 miles that way. And we committed ourselves to planting churches. Sometimes people say, well, why don't you plant churches to grow instead of multiplying campuses? Well, there are lots of reasons, but we, we just said both and, not either or. And 10 churches have been planted, five of them here in the Twin Cities, and one in Charlotte, one in Raleigh one in Memphis, one in San Diego, and one in Little Rock. And now we're at another Antioch moment. So you get the flavor of what I mean by an Antioch moment. And this Antioch moment is, is really unique. And it has, it's created by three questions, and I'll just give you the, the questions. Number one, how long can and should John Piper be the lead pastor for preaching and vision and how should that succession come about? Question number two, should treasuring Christ together, the vision of multiplying campuses, planting churches, caring for the poorest of the poor through the global diaconate, should that vision that's guided us for the last seven years be abandoned and the embrace of three distinct and separate churches all the campuses becoming churches, should it be altered with an effort to make it as good as it can be 
or should it be kept as is and all the engines stoked for the future? And third question, how shall we proceed with the funding of this vision? Building One People was launched last year, and what shall we do with it in order to pay the debt that the church has and to establish the South Campus in its own building and on its own land? Now, the elders are quite aware, we've been struggling with these things for quite a while, that these three questions are unusually interconnected. How you answer one has a tremendous bearing on how you answer the other two. Succession, structure, funding. Okay, so with that as the picture of the present moment, let's go to our text and read it again and see what their Antioch moment was like and what God did at that moment and how it relates to us. I'm going to have seven observations, all of them relevant to us. So Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. Now there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Seven observations that I believe are relevant to our Antioch moment. Number one, God was about to act to change the world. Verse two, he said... The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the Holy Spirit did not decide what to do in that prayer meeting. He had already called them, which means he had in his mind what he meant to do in the world. God is God. He's he's not fumbling around for what to do tomorrow. God knew his plan for the world. So he assembled in his providence a worshiping, praying, fasting church leadership and he spoke to them. Something he planned long ago. And what he planned was the greatest missionary breakthrough probably in the history of the world. Saul and Barnabas are now going to launch the Christian movement into Asia Minor and then into Europe, Greece, Italy, and it moved until 2.1 billion people today live under the banner called Christian. So my first observation is when they faced their Antioch moment, God was about 
to act to change the world. Number two, God revealed his purpose to leaders. Verse one, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. You can do the study yourself about how the word prophets is used in in Antioch. Agabus, remember him? And teachers. Probably the three in the middle are the prophets and Barnabas and Saul sandwiching the end, kind of keeping the prophets under control. (laughs) If you've ever tried to believe in prophecy, you better have some teachers bracketing. And so there they are, prophetically hungry for God to speak. And he spoke to them, not to the whole church. Now, God doesn't always do it this way. I don't mean to say that this is a paradigm that he always follows, but biblically and historically, he usually does it this way. He does. God usually leads people through leaders. That's why they're called leaders in the Bible. Hebrews 13, 7, 13, 17, verse 24. But I want to stress again, you have all been made by virtue of the Holy Spirit's coming into your life through faith in Jesus Christ crucified and risen, priest to God. The role of an elder, like me, is not to function as a special mediator between you and God. So when I say leader, that's not what I'm saying. You have direct access, direct access to you, ex, what's the word? Access. <laughs> you have direct access to your Father in heaven through the one mediator, the God man, Jesus Christ by faith in him. Nevertheless, God has ordained that there be priests among priests and leaders among the sheep, shepherds among the sheep. And they are to lead, not in our own wisdom, not in our own strength. We are to lead through the book and the Holy Spirit's illumination of our minds, hearing him speak from the book. And the sheep know the voice of their master. And when the shepherds speak from the book, the sheep know it. And they love that leadership and they're eager to follow. And if the shepherd starts to speak with another voice, the simple sheep say, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't taste like grass. (laughs) Which is one of the reasons why we're a, a congregational church led by elders. Elders can go really haywire, witness hundreds of churches in this city led by elders who don't believe anymore. Tragic. So, second observation, God revealed his purpose to leaders. Doesn't have to, could lead it, give it to you. Now, maybe I should say it this way because it's in my paper here. God loves 
to reveal himself and his way forward to leaders who are humbly listening to him and humbly listening to the people. Because you're priests and you know God. Number three. God spoke to the leaders in Antioch when they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. They were not watching television when this happened. They were not studying the stock market when this happened. They were not sleeping when this happened. They were focused. They were focusing on the Lord as the leaders of the church. And their fasting means their focus was intense. That's what fasting is. It's an intensification. Fasting is like a big exclamation point at the end of the sentence, we need you. Point. Fast. That's what it means. We are hungry in our stomachs and they're growling and that's a symbol of how much we need you at this juncture in the life of Antioch. So, my guess is that they came together. I can't prove it. It's not in the text. They came together intentionally seeking God's guidance. I just say that because God gave them guidance and they're fasting and it looks like that's why they came together. So they wanted to say, what's next, Lord? What's next for Antioch? You've done so much good here. This is crazy growth here through Barnabas, a good man, and through Saul who came down from Tarsus. Oh, God, thank you. That's number three. God spoke while they were worshiping and fasting. Number four, the leadership changes that God commanded were very difficult. Verse 2, set apart for me of you five, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. <laughs> Barnabas had been sent to Antioch from Jerusalem because he was son of encouragement. Everybody in Barnabas' presence came away encouraged. Barnabas, being a good man and full of faith, it says, experienced unbelievable growth in the ministry in Antioch. So much so that he went up and he found Saul. Why? Because Saul, class A teacher, and he wants him more than he wants anybody. So he goes to get Saul and he brings him down and for a year there. They're doing that. And the Holy Spirit says, I'm taking these two. These are the two I'm taking. F.F. F. Bruce, in his commentary, writes this. The two men who were to be released for what should nowadays be called missionary service overseas were the two most prominent and gifted leaders in the church. And that's why I say this was not an easy change for the church in Antioch. It was a good change. It was a, an incredibly fruitful change. Number five, fifth observation. 
the leadership changes were not mainly leavings and losings, but commissionings and redeployings. Got that? The changes were not mainly we've lost them and they've left, but rather we've commissioned them and we've redeployed them. Now, how do I know that? Where do I get that? I get it from the ongoing relationship between Paul and Barnabas and the church in Antioch. For example, in chapter 14, at the end of that first missionary journey where they planted churches, it says this. This is chapter 14, verses 26 and 27. They sailed back to Antioch. So Barnabas and Saul, they sailed back to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So in the mind of Paul now and Barnabas, and the church of Antioch, what had happened was not a loss. They're back. And they're back with a report about this amazing thing that God had used the emissaries of Antioch to do. So, listen carefully now. Similarly, the elders, and whenever I say elders, I mean me too. So, the elders... And I see the issue of succession. What's after me in this pulpit? The the elders see the issue of succession is not a question, when does John leave? Or when do we lose Pastor John? But rather... To what are we commissioning him, and how shall we, for his next chapter, deploy him? Noel and I have nowhere to go. (laughs) This is home. We live eight minutes away. Our kids have grown up here. And this is our church. You are family. Bethlehem College and Seminary is here, and I'm the chancellor. Desiring God is here, and I'm the voice and the founder. The base of operations from which I do everything else that I do is here. And I I can tell you, that though it is rewarding to go on the road periodically and speak in conferences, it is not satisfying. This is satisfying. So the question is not one of leaving. The question is one of deploying, timing, adjustment of roles, process, That's one of the crucial questions in succession and in the the Bethlehem Antioch moment. Number six, 
The transition at Bethlehem, at, uh, at Antioch, was not about survival, but about expansion. Verses 3 and 4. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. And on the book of Acts goes... The Gentile mission spread throughout Asia Minor, then to Greece, then to Italy. Paul wanted to go on to Spain, probably never made it, but others did. And now today, as I said, 2.1 billion people around the world, the biggest religion in the world, flying under the banner of Jesus Christ. The mindset of God at Antioch was not a mindset of survival. He was not saying, how can we survive as a church? The mindset was, how can the world be reached with the gospel of the crucified and risen king? That's the mindset. God gives himself to the church that gives itself to his mission. I don't think it honors the Lord, and may God not think this way. May may we not think this way. I don't think it honors the Lord when a church drifts into a survival mode, whether she's 140 years old and there are many drifting churches like that, or whether she's four years old, God is not honored when a church just drifts into a survival mode. Bethlehem's Antioch moment is not created by the question, how will we survive? That's not the question. The question for us is the mindset of how shall we maximize our expansion in the years to come. And, you know, in every church, there are people who don't get this. They just don't get it because all they can do is equate expansion with kingdom building or expansion with ego trips or or whatever. We've been listening to sermons on discipleship for a long time. God's absolutely clear will from the Bible is that Bethlehem make disciples until Jesus comes. And you know now from last Sunday's messages, that's at least three things. Go win people to Jesus and baptize them. Plant churches where they can grow and make sure in those churches they are observing everything which he commanded you. That's what disciple-making is. If you don't care about growing, you are not following Jesus. There are dead people all around this church, hell-bound, and all over this city. We don't have too many churches, and we don't have too many witnesses, and we don't have too many churches that are growing and expanding by reaching lost people. It's not an option not to grow. So if you like it the way it is, I mean, we're 5,000 people. How can you not? I mean, it's over. The small church is over. If you like a small church, go to the Sunday night service or the Saturday night service north, who are watching this sermon 30 minutes late. You can be small in a big church. They have, what, 250 people up there or so? But it's it's over as far as, oh, just us and no more. That's over. And thank God it was over a century ago. That's number 
6. Number 7. Last one. God was faithful to the church in Antioch as they went through this transition. There they were with support when Paul and Barnabas returned. They were there. They didn't throw in the towel. They were there. In fact, if you know your church history, they were there for centuries. In fact, an argument could be made, they're still there, and they've always been there in spite of large Muslim domination over Syria at times. They produced Ignatius. They produced Chrysostom. And God has been faithful to Bethlehem. Amazingly faithful. We're not a perfect church. We have many weaknesses and flaws. And guess what? The elders know that better than you do. Why do they know it better than you do? Because you know the ones you see. We know the ones everybody sees. Because they write us. That's not an easy load to bear because there are many. We don't blow any of those letters off. They're real weaknesses, right? Because you have sinful, flawed shepherds and you are a bunch of ragtag sinners. (laughs) The only kind of church that exists is an imperfect church. And it is an unbelievable grace of God that we exist. Because if you exist, you can always get better. And if you throw in the towel, then no chance for improvement if you don't exist. God has been very faithful. There have been 14 senior pastors. John Ring, John Peterson, A.R. Ogren, John Anderson... John Peterson, here in Swedish, <laughs> Frank Peterson, Olaf Bodine, Carl Vingren, Eric Carlson, Anton Scholen, Eric Lindholm, and now the Swedishness is over. We're at 1959. John Wilcox, Robert Featherstone, Bruce Fleming, and me. The reason I read those is because faithfulness is a concrete thing. It's a concrete thing. It's manifest in so many variations and differences. How different, how different were these men? And God is faithful. God's the shepherd. God's the head of his his church. Every leadership transition has been and will be hard. And ours is complicated. By the coming together of these three things, let me name them again, succession issues about how long should I keep doing this and what kinds of adjustments in roles should there be and how should we make that process happen? Structure, should we become three separate churches or should we stay one church on three campuses? Funding, how are you going to raise money when you don't know what you're doing? You got some debt to pay down and the South Campus, you're waiting, right? <laughs> Go ahead, clap right now. You're waiting. No, I, I was thinking of that. <laughs> but that's okay. Oh, you're here. Oh, you're, that's right. Ben, ben and Amy, they're the South Campus. They're visiting tonight. 
and they'll be there tomorrow. So, so th- those are the three very complex issues. Succession. I love the Lord Jesus with all my heart at my best. I love this church. I love the ministry of the word. And there is no place on the planet I would rather preach or be than here. So may the Lord make it plain how to do this. Multi-campus structural vision. Free churches, stay one. Deep tweaks and adjustments or as is full course ahead. Those are the three kinds of options. Funding, got a debt to pay down and we've got a South Campus to build whatever the future I'm committed to the South Campus. And the elders don't have a clear picture and a full picture on these three questions. The sermon series that I had planned to preach for May on building one people, we are postponing until fall. Because there's no way that I know how to encourage you to give $18 million with a cloudy future. We've got to get more Antioch moment clarity. Just in, in, in view of that postponement of uh, the building one people call for commitment in the fall sometime, may I thank you that there are so many hundreds of you who are steadfastly taking your little white envelopes, going to that second line called TCT, Treasuring Christ Together, which is the Campus Multiplication Church Planting Global Diaconate, and writing in an, a check for that amount. I think what, I should have checked with John, I think like $800,000 or something is, is sitting there waiting to be deployed because the, the, even before we do the actual, come on now, let's do 18 million this year, people are just giving. And I just want to encourage you right on through the summer to do that. We've got things to do that we know we have to do. Debt would be clearly one of them. So let me close by encouraging you with what the elders plan. Because you like to say, whoa, what kind of leadership is that? They don't know what they're going to do. Well, when God-centered leaders don't know what to do, they know what to do about not knowing what to do. Because that's in the Bible. And the first one isn't. Like, the Bible doesn't say three campuses or one. The Bible doesn't say raise the money this way. The Bible doesn't say, Pastor John, one more year or 10 more years. Those answers just aren't there. That requires Holy Spirit-given wisdom, Antioch moments. But what the Bible says is God-centered leaders who don't yet have clarity on my purpose for this church in detail, you know what to do. Pray. So here's the plan, and I mentioned it to you to summon you into a kind of parallel movement. We decided on Tuesday night, all the elders together, that we will do six 
Thursday morning, 6.30 to 7.30 prayer gatherings of elders only, downtown campus. We will, the reason for six is that's how many chapters there are in Ephesians. We're going to take a chapter a week. We're going to read the chapter, sing a song, and pray for an hour. No business, no discussion. I'm leading it. And I chose Thursday because I can be there every one of them instead of being in and out of town on Tuesday sometimes. That's where we're going. And for us, for me especially, it feels very much like an Antioch moment. Because I would love it if God would bring us out on the other side of those six weeks with an amazing sense we've got some clarity. We've got some clarity. We can lead this people with some clarity about that. Or it may take longer and that will just be one of the processes. What we mean to do is humble ourselves before the Lord and say to him, we're just children. We're just children before you. And call out to him for his guidance. And just like in that original Antioch moment, expect that explosive advance will be granted through the cluster of decisions that have to be made around this. So how might you join us? A couple of suggestions. Maybe for the next six weeks, you would set your alarm for six o'clock on Thursday morning and set aside a season to, to be with us before the throne of grace at your home. That would be one wonderful possibility. Might not God be very pleased to see a thousand or two or three thousand folks crying out to him that those elders down there on their faces before the Lord on Thursday morning at the downtown campus would be blessed with such an Antioch revelation. Or another possibility would be that you gather in groups. Uh, not many people want to get up you know, that early and go to a meeting, but Anytime, you don't, just for six weeks, join us and say, Lord, we're in this together. Uh, the elders don't have all the wisdom. And if you think you discern something deep from the Lord, we will listen very carefully to you. Those are the suggestions. Let me close like this. You know, whenever you, whenever you say we don't know, and we, we say it all the time, you might leave the impression there are not many things you know. <laughs> we know a lot of things. We really know a lot of things. And they're the big things. They're the important things. You know, I've, I've been here 30 years. I've never had anything better than a B-minus plan in my life, I don't think. I don't do A plans. I just do B-minus, and every now and then others help me, and we do B-plus. Because beyond the book... It's just us. But if you say what's in the book, you got an A-plus plan. And the A-plus plan is clear, clear as daylight, about what this life is all about. And I'll just close with two rock-solid promises that are clear for this church. One, and we love them, we love them on the eldership. Come back to them again and again. One is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. And the next one will be from Philippians 
chapter 4, verse 19. And the reason for putting the two of them back to back is that the first one says God is able and the second one says God will. And I love with Spurgeon, he said, I love the wills and shells of the Bible. Me too. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Nothing does he expect from us for which he does not give us all sufficiency at all times in all things. That's incredible. You don't have to lose one hour of sleep over any plan that you formulate in prayer. God is for us and not against us. And then here comes the most amazing one of all. The first one said God is able to do that. Philippians 4.19 says, my God... This is the Apostle Paul talking by inspiration. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches of glory in Christ Jesus. That's a given. It will be done. Every need this church has will be supplied. God Almighty says so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would now Meet this church in these next six weeks. I preach this sermon so that we would be in this together. So there'd be a lot of conversation, a lot of prayer, a lot of hope, a lot of expectation, a lot of sharing among the members and with the elders about what we love and what we want to see happen over these weeks. So God, come, especially to the leaders Leaders are important historically and biblically, though not all important. And so meet us. You have been a rock for us 140 years. And I pray, and this is now going to be on tape for somebody to listen to in 140 years. I pray that in the year 2151, someone would listen to this tape or watch this video and say, look at that. They prayed for us. And I pray for the people who will be in Bethlehem 140 years from now, that they would be biblically faithful, that they would be Christ-exalting, that they would be God-centered, that they would be Bible-saturated, that they would be justice-advancing and mission-oriented and filled with joy in the Holy Spirit, making an impact on that day which now we can't even conceive. You are the God of the ages, and you have been faithful to us. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.